You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the 1208 Podcast. Uh, You might be a little confused. Maybe you read the title of this episode and realized, hey, it's on the book of Matthew, which is what we're going through on sermons on Sunday. Why is this suddenly a a midweek podcast? And I will tell you why. Okay, so if you go to church, um, there's a difference between like preaching something from the stage, the way that that comes across, uh, as well as the way that it's heard, as well as the fact that like, uh, you know, people have to draw attention to themselves if they feel like they just want to leave or they're having a hard time taking it. You know, it's it's difficult sometimes to jump into particular subjects from a stage. Sometimes uh, it's easier in different settings. For example, perhaps a podcast. Because uh, on a podcast, honestly, if you're listening to a podcast, then it's probably because you're hoping to find more information uh, rather than just like that one time a week where you're at church, you want to dive in a little bit more. Uh, not that people don't do that without podcasting. I'm just saying podcast is one element of the way in which people dive in a little more. So since these particular subjects can be misconstrued or heard in a weird way because it's from stage, I thought maybe it'd be helpful to do this one as a podcast episode. Um, that way, if you already don't like what, uh, I have in my biblical interpretation, you know, you can skip the episode or, or whatever you want. So, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and, uh, jump into this and I'll say this when I was trying to debate, you know, am I going to preach on this theme from stage or do a podcast episode? Uh, I just felt like preaching on this passage was going to be hard in general. Uh, Because in this passage, Jesus addresses not just like one or two hot topics, but like two or three hot topics of today. Uh, What he says can apply to things like marriage and divorce, to cheating, to singleness, to LGBTQ stuff, and more. Um, And, uh, you know, as I was just reading through, I was like, man, people will hear this differently. And so I I tried to pray a little bit about it and just say like, you know... (laughs) if I'm even going to get into this, God, what, what do you need to have me do? And I felt like there was two things that I needed to pay attention to. Um, one, I felt that Jesus wanted me to note the context of this passage, uh, because it can sound a bit harsh on people who have been through divorce and things like that. I felt like God was saying like, Jamin, who is Jesus talking to? And this is important. This is what we're taught. Us pastors are taught in college and whatnot is always pay attention to your context. And when you do that, you realize that though Jesus's words may seem harsh in the area of things like divorce, um, his comments are not aimed at people who have been divorced per se, but rather at the Pharisees. So we're going to see it, but the whole context of today's passage is the Pharisees trying to trick Jesus. They want him to say something uh, that will mess him up or lump him into a camp that they can all target that already exists, things like that. Uh, so part of Jesus's uh, um, teaching is if you sense like some kind of like, uh, um, you know, harshness there, you just got to remember like it's harshness at the Pharisees. 
think of it this way, right? In the Bible, Jesus runs into a woman who's been divorced five times. And that woman does not like run away crying like, oh, you told me I was divorced. I feel so bad. Rather, she runs away saying, I got to tell all my friends. I can't believe you know all these things about me. I have to go tell them, bring them back so they can meet you. So think of it that way, okay? Jesus in today's passage is going to be saying some harsh things about divorce. But then you see Jesus run into someone who is divorced. And does he get up in her face and say really harsh things and condemn her? No. In fact, I don't even know if what he's saying is convicting to her at all or if she's not registering it that way. I don't know. You know, you got to dive into these passages to try to feel them out. But that's the first thing. I felt like God was saying, if you're going to talk about this, first off, recognize like Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the ones who are at odds with him, the ones who are trying to test him and mess him up in this situation. So you need to recognize like Jesus's um, response to them is response specifically to the Pharisees. Okay. The other thing that I felt like I needed to note, I felt like God was saying, if you're going to preach on this, Jamin, you need to talk about yourself. <laughs> I was like, uh, nope, not cool with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll actually start there. You know, it's easy to like point out things that, uh, maybe don't seem up our aisles, but then when you step back and I've had this happen a few times where like somebody all say like, man, you got this going on. You got to work on this. And then later God would be like, Jamin, did you ever realize this particular thing in your life is the same thing? It's the same thing. You just, they don't manifest the same way. So you think of them as different, uh, but you've got the same thing going on in your life and you, you gotta, you gotta pay more attention to that. You gotta watch out for that. And then I feel convicted, like, okay, so if I can acknowledge the stuff in my life, then I'll be, um, you know, I'll be taking out the two by four, or at least notice I have a two by four in my eye <laughs> when I'm trying to point out the speck of dust in, in someone else's. So here's a few confessions. If we're going to talk on things like marriage, divorce, singleness, LGBTQ stuff and whatnot, then a few confessions from my life. First off, uh, I... I haven't been divorced, but I did call off an engagement. I was engaged before I met Jody, um, and that was a relationship that did not go well. Uh, and in the end, I had to, well, we we called it off. <laughs> I won't get into all the details. I don't like drama. But um, the part of the conviction on me for that, like an engagement to some extent is like a promise to make the promise to be married, you know? So like I was headed towards marriage. And uh, one of the things that convicts me, and this might be cultural, I, I don't know. But in the Bible, you know, when Mary ends up pregnant, because the Holy Spirit has given her a child. When Mary ends up pregnant, it says that Joseph looked for a way to divorce her. And yet they weren't married yet. So at least in their culture of the time, when Joseph tried to break off an engagement in their culture, that was considered a divorce. So like there's kind of the, the two by four in my eye to realize, though I maybe haven't been divorced by our culture's standards today, to some extent, you at least see like someone else might have seen it in a direction like that. I, I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here. But again, I'm just trying to pay attention to the two by four in my eye. Um while I was dating, uh, sex was a big struggle of mine. I pushed the line a little bit more with every relationship to the point that, like, by the end of it, I don't 
feel like I could call myself a virgin, you know? So like, um, you see that in my life, recognizing just sexual topics in general were a struggle for me. Uh, another story that, uh, often I, you know, for a long time didn't share with anyone, but with all the conversations going on today, I've found it important to be able to share it. Um, I remember when I was really, really young, I had a friend, we hung out uh, a lot and there was just one day where suddenly like, I had this question within myself, do I like my friend? He's a guy, I'm a guy, do I like him? And I was unsure or unsure of how to answer that. Uh, And I always had this thing for actually a lot of my life where something gets under my skin and suddenly I just build up all this anxiety towards it that I feel like if I don't confess it immediately, I'm just going to burst from the inside. (laughs) And that was one of those things. Now, within like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes here I am, I'm like, do I like my friend? I don't know. How do I do with this? And then uh, the only person there to like confess to was my friend's mom. So I'm like, I, I got to tell you something. I don't know what to do with this. And this is the 90s. So like, this is something you really don't talk about. And she was just like, what? Just don't tell me. I don't need to know this. Leave me alone. <laughs> you know, so that was kind of the end of it. Um, now, some of you might hear that and be like, oh, so Jamin, you're you're gay or you're bi. Uh, and I can tell you honestly, no, I'm very much straight. I'm really the only person who can know that. And I can tell you that I'm straight. Um, and some might say, no, well, you just have, you're repressed, uh, on these topics, but it's there. And I can tell you again, no, I'm, I'm very much straight. Uh, but I think uh, a lot of guys and girls, they have those moments. And I think if we opened up about it, we would probably be more honest. Like, yeah, a lot of us have been there where we've wondered. Uh, one last story before we kind of get to our passage Uh, You know, this message, this uh, podcast episode is on marriage. And it was actually as soon as this weekend that I just realized a lot of weak spots in my life, in our marriage, in, how do you say that? A lot of weak spots in our marriage that could be pinned and blamed on me that I really need to work on. So as far as Jamin saying like, have a marriage like me, no, I understand I'm saying like, I got problems too. I got things I got to work out and, uh. Um, we all have imperfect relationships that that we got to uh, sort out to grow them and disciple them into all that they can be, you know, whether that's in our own lives or in our lives as as a couple. So uh, there's there's that. There's there's a few confessions, and I hope those confessions, you know, aren't turned into ammo against me. Rather. I tell them so that we're all on the same place looking at this passage. We all recognize the stick in our own eye. So here's our passage, Matthew 19, 3 through 9. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. So again, remember context. They're testing. They're not not like truthfully they have a question. There's more going on here. They asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, 
Why then did Moses command one to give a a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Matthew 19, 3-9. All right. Uh, three main things that I want to dive into today that are hard to hear because these hot topics are still hot topics today. These are three things that we should take away from this passage. Uh, and in many of these cases, some of us may have already broken these rules, may not know what to do anymore. You know, like, I- I'm not coming here with, like, a stick here to condemn us or anything. I- I'm just here to Let's try to take some time to look at what the Bible's saying and how to process it and allow the Holy Spirit to work in each one of us in the way that he needs to, not in the way that Jamin needs to or you need to. So what does Jesus have to say about relationships in this passage? Three main things I'd like to hit on. Number one, divorce is invalid. Now, I know that's hard. Uh, It's often been said, and I don't have statistics in front of me, but it's often been said that there's like just as many divorced people in the church as there are in the world. Um, You know, I don't know what the stats are, but uh, we look around us and we see divorce plenty on, on both sides, whether it be the world or the church. So a lot of us feel like we can recognize, yeah, we, we do have a problem with that. Um, and here we have Jesus saying uh, that divorce is invalid, that we're so connected to another person when we get married um, that, you know, Jesus said, like, if you divorce, unless there's been cheating involved, if you divorce and you marry another person, you commit adultery. Uh, so I want to look back in Jesus's time. There were different teachings on divorce, okay? It's so like most of us today... I think even not just in the church, but in the world, we would say like divorce is not good. I mean, we see the results of it. Um, we we wish at least that we could aim for a society that had it all together in this front, could live unified and, and things like that. In Jesus's time, however, religious officials were actually quite liberal on this rule. Some were conservative, but some were quite liberal. So unlike the liberal side of things, there was a rabbi named Hillel, and Hillel taught, this is ridiculous, and everyone today would agree with this, right? Hillel taught that you could divorce a woman if she burned your toast. Like, it was that simple. She messed up a meal, you can you can break it off. And this is religious teaching from a religious professional <laughs> under God's people, you know? Uh, one of his predecessors like took it so far uh, that he was like so far even beyond that, like burning your toast and leaving ridiculous, right? Well, one of his predecessors like, look, if you find someone more attractive, you can leave and just marry them. Like, this is just ridiculous. And we can all agree with that. So these people who, these Pharisees who walk up to Jesus, to some extent, they're trying to figure out like, what camp are you in? Are you as liberal as Hillel or do you fall somewhere else? Now, on the other side, you have uh, Shammai. And Rabbi Shammai, he argued that you could only get divorced if there was adultery in the marriage. So if there's cheating involved, then you could get divorced. So a lot of us are like, oh, so Jesus wasn't unique. He actually lands himself in Shammai's camp. Hillel or Shammai or some of these other ones in between. Jesus is a Shammai kind of guy. 
Uh, no, actually, Jesus Jesus takes it a step further. He doesn't just say that you can get divorced. Uh, like, yes, he agrees. If there is adultery present, if there's cheating, then you can get divorced. But he goes beyond that to say, like, you don't understand. There is really no such thing as divorce in God's eyes unless adultery is present. No one is actually divorced unless adultery is present in the marriage. So Jesus kind of like takes it a step further than Shammai. Yes, if adultery gets in the way, you can divorce, but you still misunderstand. Like you, you otherwise, like you can't be divorced. Like from a spiritual God perspective. Okay. Uh, some of us get confused here because we're like, okay, but all the Bible is God's word. And if you go to the Old Testament, it says that you can, in fact, get divorced. Uh, I could spend like two hours just talking about understanding how to read our Bibles well, but that's not going to be, that's way too much for, for this. So let me just say this. Uh, Jesus explains why uh, um, his his rule that uh, you can't get divorced is greater than the Old Testament's rule that you can get divorced, okay? He explains that divorce was a Moses thing. So sometimes in the Bible, you come across stories that look like God things, but are actually just narrative, and the Bible doesn't give you social commentary as to what uh, that story actually meant. For example, in the book of Judges, there's a guy named Jephthah who uh, vows to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house uh, to honor God for a victory that he had in war, right? His daughter comes out of the house. He's probably thinking like a dog or a cat or some other kind of farm animal that maybe he'll lay eyes on. Instead, his daughter comes out. And so now he's like, well, now I have to kill my daughter. And as far as we can tell from judges, he goes through with it. That is ridiculous to us, especially because the Bible says all over the place, like God abhors, he hates, he despises child sacrifice. But this story is told without any of that commentary. It just says Jephthah went through with it. And so sometimes we read stories like that. We're like, oh, so I guess God wanted that or he was cool with it. Or God could have intervened if he didn't want it. Why didn't God intervene? He must have wanted it. But that's not what the Bible's saying. Sometimes the Bible just paints story for us in the way that it happened, and it leaves it with us to digest and sort out. And sometimes when we sort it out, we realize, oh, hey, this wasn't a God thing. This was just a narrative about Jephthah's life, right? In the same way, Jesus here is saying, look, Moses actually did allow divorce, but that's a narrative assigned to Moses. That's not a God thing. That story is not in the Bible because God wanted Moses to create rules about divorce. That story is in the Bible because humanity, God's people, had such hard hearts that eventually in the narrative of Moses' life, he just decided, you know what? Fine. We're making this rule. If you're going to get divorced, here's how you're going to get divorced properly. And here's Jesus saying like, that was a Moses thing. It's in the Bible. It's biblical. But uh, that is not, therefore, like a God thing. So uh, just because the Old Testament allowed divorce, we see Jesus come along and say, you're reading the Bible wrong. You need to understand, though this is God's word, this is a story where God was not setting the stage. This is a story about Moses. 
All right, so that catches us up to speed on trying to understand Old Testament, New Testament, how to sort that out. Uh, and once we start looking at this from like a wider perspective, we realize that like for God, marriage is not a chick flick, right? It's not swept up in emotions and hoping that things are just going to be perfect and go exactly how you want. And if you get unhappy with the other person, divorce then can be your way out. God doesn't give us that route. Instead, God's like, marriage is not about, you know, perfect happiness. They lived happily ever after. It's not a Disney movie. Marriage is about a faithful commitment to the end of time to another person, regardless of how bad it might get. Though Jesus does give that cutoff line of, well, if they cheat on you, they've they've crossed the line and, and broken the marriage off. If you choose to accept that as the end of the marriage, there are stories, of course, of people who have healed their marriages even after cheating. So Jesus's power to reconcile us to each other is incomprehensible because a lot of us struggle to see that as a possibility. But Jesus can do that. Um, but he still understands like, yeah, sure, if if they've broken the marriage covenant in that way, then you might choose to to get divorced. But the Bible's showing us here that uh, the Bible isn't always romance. Uh, in fact, throughout the Bible, there's a lot of marriages that are arranged. It's a different culture, a different time, which means these people are not always entering into marriages based on uh, the feeling of overwhelming love for one another. Sometimes it's like a financial deal worked out by their parents in the background. Hey, you give your daughter to my son and I'll trade you this livestock as a, a gift to you for for that. You know, uh, that that was part of what marriage was in ancient culture. And so to understand that uh, God still uh, expected people who fell into that kind of marriage to be faithful to one another to the end of time, it reminds us that marriage is not about what we Americans idolize as like love the rush of hormones and and falling in love and the gazing into each other's eyes and all these things the bible understands marriage to be you chose this person you are with them all the way to the end and the only thing that separates you is death and that's why we make the vows that we do because we believe that god treats marriage as this ultimately important thing so Marriage for God is not a chick flick. It is a faithful commitment to the end of time uh, because we become one flesh when we get married. And when you state it in that light, divorce really kind of looks like a horror movie, you know, uh, one that that hurts us significantly. If you think of it's kind of a weird image for marriage. But if you think of when you get married, suddenly you become conjoined twins with your other with your spouse, right? <laughs> the the flesh has connected at uh the arm and now you're just completely together and it goes all the way up your arm and then down your your leg as well you are within this image one flesh and then once you have this image in your head you know imagine divorce being the breaking of that flesh it's not something that god wants but it might be something that one of the people within the marriage or both of them want and so here they are like a horror movie pulling out chainsaws pulling out all kinds of things, trying to cut down the one flesh, trying to find the separated point, yet now you're sharing organs, you're sharing all these 
different vital functions. And as you're cutting through, you're breaking through some of them, you're feeling this pain. It's really grotesque. And I kind of grossed myself out just trying to give that analogy. <laughs> but when you think of yourself as one flesh, trying to break that one flesh, it, it really is something out of a horror movie. And I think that's why some of us feel just so distraught and destroyed after a, a divorce is we've experienced that image to, to some extent. So uh, that was our first point. What does Jesus have to say about relationships? He shows us that one divorce is invalid. Uh, and again, remember when he talks to the woman at the well, he's very loving and kind to the point that though this lady has been divorced five times, though she's sleeping around with someone else in this very moment, she still uh, feels comfortable enough around Jesus to go find all her friends and say, you got to meet this guy. So I know saying divorce is invalid. That's that's a hard thing to hear. Um, but I think at the same time, we just need to look at the Bible and see what's being said. Okay, so number two, what does Jesus have to say about relationships? Number two, marriage is between male and female. Uh do understand, you know, a lot of times we think that LGBTQ stuff, that that's all brand new. It's not. It goes back a long, long way. In fact, we see the evidence that there were gay people in Jesus' time. Since we know that, we have to recognize, like, if Jesus in that moment, talking to the Pharisees, wanted to affirm gay marriage, he could have. Because the idea of, of gay relationships was within the mindset of possibilities of the people at the time. What we have to recognize instead is that Jesus opted not to just talk about marriage in very general terms that would leave space for the idea of gay marriage. Instead, he he very intentionally quoted uh, Genesis to set us up to see uh, that it's between male and female. Therefore, a, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And... Again, he says, in the beginning, God made them male and female. So um, Jesus looks back to the beginning. How was it in that place? And that's actually very important for us to recognize on another theme. Uh, a lot of people get so caught up in the creation story of Genesis that they think we're just looking for God creating the world in seven days. In fact, this uh, weekend I drove a long distance and came across billboards that were screaming at me, don't you know God made the world in seven days? Um, I've, of course, written on that topic saying, like, I think there is space for God to make us through evolutionistic means. I wrote about that in Alien Theology, uh, how God can work in that way and the Bible leaves space for it. There's, we also have a podcast episode early on in Genesis uh, about that. You can go check that out. Um, but uh, why'd we get into this? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Okay, so... A lot of people think that the creation story is all about God just like creating in a literal way. But you have to understand like creation stories in ancient times, if you were to compare Genesis to these other ones, what we you would see as a main theme is order. God comes into a chaotic world. There's already water there. It's swirling. It's crashing. It's God enters into the chaos and suddenly begins to bring order to everything. He makes land. He... He makes animals. He makes animals of this kind, of this kind, and stars, and the moon, and the sun, and, and all of these things. So in the Bible, 
we have uh, 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 our opening story is about God bringing things to order. It is not a background theme to the creation story. In fact, we might even say like it is the primary theme of the creation story. God makes order, just like in all the other ancient creation stories uh, are often about uh, um, a God stepping in and trying to put order into the world. When we start to realize that, we understand why Jesus is saying, well, how was it in the beginning? What was marriage like in the beginning? And suddenly he quotes the creation story. God made them male and female and then said the male will hold fast to his wife. Uh, That right there is Jesus saying, like, God created order. What did order look like? Okay, so now that we know that that's what order is, well everything outside of that would be a disorder. And that's a slap in the face uh, to a lot of big names in the Bible, right? In fact, we've been going through Genesis and we've seen, or we will see, Abraham's going to start playing around with the idea of polygamy or concubines. He kind of turned his wife over to um, get married to someone else so that he could protect himself. So you see lots of big name people in the Bible like they fall short. If Jesus were to talk to them on this topic, he'd say, what was it like in the beginning? Uh, a male and a female coming together, that's that's what marriage is. So Jesus, when he's quoting the beginning, he's, he's quoting wisdom, he, wisdom literature. How did God organize the world? Okay, so don't expect that suddenly it'll be different than that because this is how God originally organized and uh, brought order into the world. So Jesus points to the beginning um, to show us that, that Adam and Eve are to be not just like one way of doing marriage, but the way of doing marriage, the example for the rest of humanity to follow, because that's how God set it up. Uh, So yeah, Jesus takes us back to that. Uh, Now, do understand this, please. Uh, Some of you might be hearing me say, oh, well, that means that you think that we're all straight, that no one's actually LGBTQ and they're just fooling themselves. No, that's not what I'm saying. Absolutely not. Look, if you're a man who is truly attracted to men, then you know that. You know that. No one can tell you otherwise if that truly is the way that you are oriented. Same way, if you're a woman who's truly attracted to women, then you know that. Absolutely. There's there's no way that you don't know that. I'm not saying that you're not that way, that you're not oriented that way. I'm not saying anything like that. Uh, as to how you ended up there, you know, a lot of people today would say, well, I was I was born this way, um, which is that popular Lady Gaga song. Uh, to that, uh, all the people who have been doing investigations on this, they keep coming back and saying, honestly, scientific consensus is not there. Uh, scientific papers all over the place on that particular topic. So the verdict is still out as to if you were born that way. Um, I do imagine in my life, like if it hadn't been the 90s and I told my friend's mom what I told him with my confession at the beginning, like, hey, I'm afraid I have feelings for your son. If that was today, there's a possibility she might have encouraged that, you know, and that could have changed the the track of my life. Whereas... Uh, um, that's not what happened, and partially because I, I was feeling like I was convicted by God that I needed to pay attention to this feeling to to turn from it. So 
I know that's not helpful to a lot of people. Um, I think of books like uh, oh, Gregory Coles. Gregory Coles has a great book in which he talks about uh, um, how he tried. He tried and he tried, he tried to be straight, but as early as he could remember, he was just never feeling oriented that way. And uh, he wanted God to make him straight. He prayed countless times for God to make him straight, and he just wasn't. Uh, so what what do you do if that's the case? If if I am saying as a pastor that I'm that LGBTQ is a real thing, that you can be that, and that you know if you are that, then Jamin, what are you saying when it comes to marriage? What do LGBTQ Christians do when it comes to marriage? Because that is part of our conversation, right? Like the rest of the world, um, they're not held to God's standards, or at least we can't hold them to God's standards because they're not following God, you know? But if you're a Christian and you're LGBTQ, then what do you do when it comes to marriage? Well, Gregory Coles is one example of how you might uh, uh, live that out. And uh, to see where he goes, we're actually going to continue our passage in Matthew. This is interesting to me. Um, You know, we read this whole thing Uh, that Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. He's being tested. He talks with them about marriage, divorce. He talks to them about uh, male and female. But Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus goes on to talk a little bit more to the Pharisees on this topic. And Jesus is not recorded as doing this in the other Gospels that have this same story. So this is like the deleted scenes. Matthew has more to say. Yeah, he's remembering more of what Jesus said from there. So here's what happens. In Matthew 19, 10 to 12, the disciples said to him, to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Uh, now, different uh, researchers take that comment different ways. Uh, to me, it seems pretty straightforward that uh, the disciples are saying like, man, if 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 getting divorced uh, is like, you know, <laughs> if getting divorced is, is adultery, then it's probably better just not to marry. That's, that's the way that it sounds to me. Uh, because maybe, I don't know, maybe they're just seen so many divorces that they're like, man, that's that a lot of people are, are falling into what you just said. They're getting divorced and then doing so committing adultery and severing one flesh. And they're still seen as connected in God's eyes anyways. Um, so that that's what it feels like to me that the disciples are saying right there. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So we're like, okay, they just said it's better not to get married at all. What is Jesus going to respond to that? Here's what he says. He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So just to rephrase, not everyone can receive this idea that it's better not to marry, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have made, who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. That right there is a very intense passage, and it does give us an answer um, to what LGBTQ Christians 
um, would supposedly be called to do when it comes to marriage, though it's not one that we really like to hear. Uh, so this is point three in our, our series here that wraps us up in our series of Jesus's comments on relationship. Point three is that some are made for singleness. Some are made for singleness. And, and Jesus, uh, he talks about three different kinds of people who are single. First off, uh, he says, uh, eunuchs who have been so from birth. In other words, he's saying like, there are some people out there who are born without genitals or there's some kind of dysfunction down there. And it's just very clear that marriage isn't going to work out for them for, for this reason, uh, because they don't have the capacity to sexually perform, right. Or to create children or, or what have you. So, uh, he talks about those who are born without uh, genitals, those who have been eunuchs from birth. But then he goes on to say, there are also eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. I know that confuses us, but in uh, ancient times, masters would sometimes castrate their servants just to ensure that their servants wouldn't uh, um, like have sex with their spouses or perhaps uh, for other reasons, but masters would do that. They would castrate their, their servants, and so these servants would be made eunuchs uh, by men. But then Jesus goes on to say one more kind of eunuch. He says, there are also those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I do want to clarify here. People have wondered, like, does that mean like people are mutilating themselves? They're castrating themselves uh, on behalf of Jesus for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? No, I I don't think that's what's going on here. There is uh, the legend of an early church father who did that, who uh, castrated himself so that he could fight his lust. Um, But, you know, we usually see Jesus putting body parts back on people, not cutting them off. Um, So I think what Jesus is saying here is like, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is like, there are some people who have decided, though they have genitals that work and could get married, they have decided to live the same sexual life of a eunuch where they don't pursue sex. They, they've given that over. They've chosen to be celibate for the sake of heaven. Now, we have an example of this in the Bible, right? The famous example of Paul, the apostle. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 through 9, um, in a time where you were often considered cursed if you didn't get married, uh, you were considered the outcast, the weirdo, Paul comes and tells people he wishes that they didn't get married like he does. He says, I wish that all were as myself am, were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, yeah, we have to recognize that here in this passage, Paul's saying, like, I'm one of those guys who's made himself celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. We don't see Paul saying, like, I castrated myself. Rather, you know, uh, marriage would get in the way of all of the ministry that I have to do. And I feel like God's just calling me to to be a ministry so full time to not have to take care of children or a family but just completely go to the ends of the earth proclaiming the gospel. That's more or less the way that Paul lived his life. 
Uh, and he wished that other people could receive that as well. But at the same time, he understood that that was a gift that only he had. Uh, he said, not everybody, you know, everybody has their own gift, one of one kind, one of another. So Paul's saying, like, the gift of singleness, first off, singleness is not like a torturous device upon me, but it's a gift that I embrace uh, that brings me closer to God and following what he's calling me to do. Um, so Paul is one of those people who's made himself celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes I wonder about other people who maybe have this gift who don't operate in it. Uh, I think of John Wesley. So we're a free Methodist church, which means we come out of the Methodist tradition. The Methodist tradition was started by John Wesley. Um, and as I look at his life, when you read through his journals, like it's clear that you know he, he wanted to get married. There was this girl early on that he really liked, but she was engaged to someone else. And eventually... She got married to that person, and so he, you know, he kind of gave up on marriage for quite some time after that, but then he got so so strong in ministry, just going around proclaiming God's kingdom everywhere, just completely sold out for God. He's on the road constantly. You know, his life has no space for marriage, quite honestly. The way in which he lives at this, like, rapid pace— it'd be very difficult, if not impossible, for him to work out a marriage. But he does eventually fall in love with this other girl. Uh, But his brother Charles, (laughs) this is well into his ministry. His brother Charles is like, oh man, I feel like if he gets married, he's not going to be able to keep the pace of all the ministry God's called him to do. So his brother Charles marries off this lady while John's out of town. And when John comes back, like this girl that he was interested in, is not available anymore because she's been married away, right? So it's just like a soap opera when it comes to John Wesley's uh, uh, love life, you know? Uh, And it it continues to be a soap opera. It seems at this point as though John has just decided, like, I would like to get married. Perhaps he's thinking, I would like to enjoy the gift of sex before I die. You know, I don't know what's going through his head. Um, But he then seems to move into this relationship with someone else that kind of moves quickly and, well, maybe not quickly. It's been a long time since I read the story. But I will tell you this. The marriage that he ends up in is really bad. Like, really bad. (laughs) He never gets divorced, but John Wesley does not treat his marriage the way that he should. He doesn't hold himself up to the standards that I believe God shows us. Uh, because John Wesley like gets married, you know, and then continues to live the rapid pace of Paul, the rapid pace that John Wesley lived, and just kind of like goes out there doing all this ministry, never seeing his wife, and his wife has got her own problems where she's like super jealous, and that creates even more issues. Like it's just, it's bad, it's bad. So when I look back at John's story, I'm like John. You know, you exhibited a lot of the gifts of singleness, a lot of the qualities that we see in Paul. You exhibited a lot of those things, but it kind of seemed like in the end, like you still really hoped to be married and you just kind of like went with it. When all your options were gone, you just kind of chose one marriage, hoped that it would work out, and it didn't because you kept living in the way that a single person would. I think I might have got super sidetracked there, but I say that to say, like, 
this is a possibility of what it looks like when you have the gift of singleness, but then you um, commit your life into uh, a marriage, you know, like you now have to like live for that marriage because God expects you to live for that marriage. And uh, you kind of see like these two sides of John like clashing right here. Okay, we're way off topic, I know. uh, But my point at the moment is some are made for singleness. Uh, And Jesus just gave us three examples. Those born without genitals, those who have been castrated by their masters, and those who have decided to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Here's the thing. uh, I would suggest, since we were just asking this question, right? uh, What do LGBTQ Christians do when it comes to marriage? I would suggest, and I totally understand this is hard for anyone to accept, including those who are called to singleness, it's hard for them to accept, like John Wesley. Um, But I would suggest that you are gifted with a similar calling to singleness. Uh, Since Jesus has set the parameters as to what marriage looks like between a man and a woman, because this matches the order that God set in place. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of reached this conclusion that in the same way, if, if that doesn't seem like something you feel like you can fit into, then in the same way, someone who's been castrated by their masters might have to take on a life of singleness. So you would have to find yourself taking on a life of singleness to deal with a similar calling. And I've had this conversation with gay people before, and I got to tell you, it kills me every time because I know none of us want a life of singleness. (laughs) Though Paul talks about it as a gift, most of us are like, "Uh uh-uh, no, I don't see that. So I understand, like, I cannot make this decision for you. You and you alone are the only person who can make this decision. It's a hard decision. Uh, It goes against the grain of much of society today, and it's always gone against the grain uh, against society. In fact, like I said earlier, singleness in the Bible in ancient times, even like Old Testament, singleness was like so weird, it was almost looked at as a curse. But then you have Paul come along, and he redeems it, and he says, some of us are given this gift. Uh, and I mentioned uh, uh, Gregory Coles earlier. He, he was... Uh, keeps praying, God, make me straight ever since my earliest moments. I can only remember being attracted to the same sex. Would you please make me straight? That never happened. But in his book, Single Gay Christian, which is a good book uh, and definitely worth reading if you would identify as gay, simply because like a lot of times it's straight people saying like, here's what we think the Bible's saying. I think it's much better to hear it from someone dealing with the same thing who has the same story as you. And uh, I also think it's really good for straight people to read this to see just how intense this difficulty is. Um, But he finally decided, you know, I I feel like uh, I I need to live a single life in order to um, honor God, given uh, my my orientation. So that was a conclusion that he eventually reached and he tried to convince himself out of it. He went and started reading books uh, that would give him the space to um, be gay and uh, have a gay marriage and be a Christian. He, he wanted to go that route and he tried studying those routes, but he just couldn't quite uh, bring himself to it in the end. Eventually he decided, 
like I said, to, to, he felt to honor God, he had to live the single life, but not become straight because he had already tried that and, and it didn't work, right? Um, so Gregory Coles, that's a, that's a good book to read. His book, uh, Single Gay Christian, is a really good book. Uh, now, look, I know sometimes we just feel like when we get into um, sex topics in general, there's just this whole kind of like mess of things that goes on and it's hard to kind of keep track of where everything's going. Um, we just need to understand that God has offered salvation into a mess of sexuality before. I recently read a book on uh, on Acts 9. There's one story where uh, the evangelist Philip goes to save a eunuch. And this whole book, which was someone's dissertation turned into a book, was all about that moment, trying to understand theologically um, what we can take away from this. And I thought it had a lot of really interesting points as it dived into um, the ancient world. Because, man, uh, you know, we don't, at least in America, we don't have like, eunuchs everywhere we look, you know, or anything like that. But ancient times, eunuchs, as Jesus just casually references them, it shows you like eunuchs, you you knew what eunuchs were. You didn't have to ask like, hey, what's that word mean again? Or anything like that. You you just knew that this is someone who was castrated in, in some way. Um, so when this author jumps into the story about the evangelist Philip, telling a eunuch about Jesus and baptizing him and he gets he gets saved like this author's like this is actually a, a very interesting story cuz you got to you got to look at eunuchs in in the ancient world uh in fact I think we'd see a lot of overlap in in some ways between LGBTQ today and eunuchs in the ancient world uh when you look at the writing in the ancient world they often called eunuchs Things like uh, effeminate males. Sometimes they, they just called them girls. Sometimes they said they were transitioning from male to female. And sometimes they said that they were neither male nor female. Um, now, if you were castrated after you had gone through puberty, the effect was not always as great. Um, but if you were castrated before puberty... This actually scientifically, you know, it caused a lot of differences in your body because uh, puberty would take on its form in a different way. So eunuchs who were castrated before puberty, they lacked facial and body hair. They had wider hips and higher voices. They had less developed muscles. And there was an enlargement of their breasts and their buttocks. So when we look at uh, things like this, like we realize like, you would see someone and you would probably recognize that they were a eunuch just by the way that they looked because of the way that science had worked out in them uh, during during puberty. So when we recognize this, we, we then look at the story of Acts 9 and we realize that in this person, there are some qualities that look very LGBTQ to us. Um, or we at least see like, you know, like a whole mess of sexuality going on here. Um, and then we see an angel comes to Philip and says, you got to go meet this eunuch. And he starts going after this eunuch. And then the Holy Spirit comes to Philip and says, you got to go to this eunuch. And he goes to this eunuch. And then he tells him about Jesus because this eunuch was already chasing after God. Uh, and this eunuch gets baptized 
and he's saved. Like that's one of the first Gentiles in the book of Acts to get saved. He's he's maybe not the first, but he's one of the first in Acts 9, which the author of this book that I've been referencing, he would say like, maybe the ambiguity here is to make us think of like a whole mess of sexuality. God specifically sends someone into all of that and leads them to Christ, you know? Uh, because we're like, well, was this guy castrated before or after, you know, where does he fit along this line? Some people might really want to know all that. Uh, but the thesis in this book is like, maybe it is ambiguous for a reason. Maybe like, uh, acts isn't like, here's what all the ways in which this guy was a eunuch. Maybe the author of acts is just like, I want you to think of everything that you associate with eunuchs, the whole mess of sexuality that can be there. And now I want you to understand that God has sent us into every corner of the world, into everything to show people who Jesus is. And that maybe he doesn't specifically define this eunuch to open us up to the ambiguity of just how big uh, God's uh, love is for people who often may have looked like they're on the outside, God bringing them into the inside. Now, this shouldn't be new to us, but I think even today, like it's new to people. But if we were to go to the Old Testament, Isaiah 56, four through five, God gives a, a prophetic word. He says, thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now that right there is perhaps one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, in my opinion, if you're trying to sort out this whole LGBTQ thing in the way that uh, we've been looking at it with what Jesus has said to the Pharisees. Here we have God in the Old Testament saying to these, these eunuchs, so these uh, castrated people, he's entering, he's looking into their sexual mess. And he's saying like, I see how you guys have chosen to follow me. And even though uh, the rest of Israel may not accept you in the way that I accept you, even though the rest of your... Uh, uh, friends may, even though they're getting married and, and you're not because you can't, even though all of that's going on, here's God saying like, I see how you commit to me and I give you a home in my house. You're going to be better than my sons and daughters. You get a better name than they do. I know how much you've given up. So, so you get even more. You get an everlasting name. It shall not be cut off. I think that should be a very powerful verse for everyone to see. For anyone who is willing to pursue singleness because they feel that the way in which they are oriented um, has required them to give their lives over to God rather than to another person. Um, but like, you know, straight people of course, are giving their lives to God too, but um, people who are 
sexually oriented towards the same sex and still just choose God. That right there, that's this huge, huge deal. And Isaiah does not downplay that. Isaiah celebrates like the real impact of that. So, yeah, I just wanted to pause for a moment for that. Uh, I know that this rarely happens and uh i know that there's been schools that have taught this thinking that have shut down because they just weren't successful and they realized like this wasn't the way to go about it um but there are some people out there this is just another thing to put out there there are some who have grown into heterosexuality uh, and i think in particular of deborah hirsch she has a book called redeeming sex and this is probably by far the best book I have read on this topic. And believe it or not, (laughs) I have read a lot of books on this topic. This is the first one I would recommend to everyone. Uh, Deborah Hirsch does not hold back. She gets into every topic. And part of the reason she does is because she has pretty much been through all the topics herself. Uh, Just a little bit of her story. She lived in a community house, um, growing up and she identified as gay along with uh, some of the others who were in that community house. Um, While she was there, her drug dealer uh, got put in jail for 10 days and then got saved while he was in jail. (laughs) And then he came back and he started getting all of these people in this community house to get saved as well, including Deborah. So they get saved, but their life doesn't really look much like Jesus. And they try to start going to church And amazingly, the church they end up at, and this is a long time ago, the church they end up at, just like wide open arms, they enter into the whole conversation and just love them. And as they come in, they they start growing and changing and and, uh, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in their life in, in all kinds of ways. That being said, however, Deborah, like at one point, like clearly identified, I am a lesbian. I I know it for a fact. This is who I am. But interestingly, uh, she eventually got married to a man, Al Hirsch, Alan Hirsch, who actually is a very famous Christian author who speaks at all kinds of conferences all the time. I've seen him several times. Uh, But Deborah marries Alan Hirsch and this leaves a lot of people asking questions, you know, like, hey, you, you say that you were a lesbian, but you're married to a man. How did that work out for you? And in her book, Redeeming Sex, she says, many people ask me what my journey was like. And I say that learning to love a man wasn't really the issue. Intimacy was. I had to learn to trust a man again in those tender areas where trust, or perhaps even the possibility of trust, had been broken. And to be honest, at first, even the thought of having sex with a man gave me a sense of revulsion. It took me a long time and a loving, patient husband. And that's, uh, that's just one story that, that I leave out there. Deborah actually then goes on to talk about a few other stories. She shows that they're rare, uh, but she shows other people like her who had uh, made arrangements um, in ways that they felt had honored God by being the male-female relationship. Um, But perhaps like Deborah, it took a loving, patient spouse as they worked through all that. So I know it's rare, but uh, it is one possibility that Deborah um, 
herself fell into and then shows a few other stories like that. Okay, so this this brings us to the end. This has been a long podcast episode on a very complicated topic where we dived into all kinds of stuff, um, where I got sidetracked a hundred different times. Um, I'll end just by telling you the way it convicts me. Again, I gave you stories from my life. I am imperfect. I am hardly one to be preaching at others about uh, having it all together when I showed you stories where where I do not have it together myself. Um but there's two big ways that Jesus' words convicts me as I read through this. Uh, number one, I recognize in my own life that if I were to get divorced, which, you know, I, I've agreed with Jody, we've vowed to each other, we will not do this. It's till death do us part. But if I were to get divorced, I then recognize this is the way that this verse convicts me. Okay, For me, for myself, I have chosen like, if something went horribly wrong and we got divorced, I have chosen to live a celibate single life after that, uh, recognizing that God has called me to to Jody and has put me with her. She is uh, my my chance to do marriage right. Um, which you know, some people are like, well, maybe Jesus was just over embellishing. He does that sometimes. Maybe he's just saying, you know. Uh, yeah, again, divorce is like adultery. Maybe he's not saying like you can't get remarried again. I just, I wonder, because when you look at 1 Corinthians 7.10, Paul pretty much seems to be referencing Jesus' teaching here. Because it's there he says, to the married, I give this charge. And then, in, and then he pauses and he says, not I, but the Lord. In other words, he's like, I give you this charge, but it's actually not me, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who gives you this charge. Then Paul goes on to say, the wife should not separate for her husband. Uh, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So right here you have Paul, Paul just quoting Jesus to say like, look, if you get divorced, you should remain unmarried Otherwise, you, you should fix the relationship that you were once in. Seems to be the way in which Paul legitimately seems to process Jesus's words rather than say that it's an embellishment of sorts. Um, I think that this is actually a very important teaching for the church to pay attention to. And I know m many of us have already gone beyond this moment and can't necessarily undo this moment. Um, but here's the thing. Christians seem to be okay with telling LGBTQ people, like, you have to live single. Uh, but then within the same passage, we see Jesus call us straight people to be single if we get divorced, and we completely ignore it. Look, if you're LGBTQ and you get uh, and then you, then if you're LGBTQ, then you have to be single, but us straight people, we can break the rules for some reason. I think that's, that's unfair. And, uh, I'll at least choose with my life. Well, I, I'm not, you know, ever planning on getting divorced. I'm choosing with my life to say like, if that were to happen, then I have to fall under the same rules that I expect others to fall under. So the passage convicts me in that way. One other way I want to say real quick that it convicts me. It reminds me that marriage is a one-time shot, and I should treat it as that important. 
there isn't uh, getting out of this or, or like uh, a way to fix it or a moving on down the road that will make things better. Uh, I have decided with how I have processed Jesus' Jesus's passage that marriage is a one-time shot. And if I don't want to be single, if I want this to work out, if Jesus always sees me as married to Jody, my wife, regardless of how things go down, then I have to love my wife uh, with all my heart, as I told her I would, uh, because this is a, a one-time chance. I don't get a redo. So, yeah, there's some convictions on me in that way. Now, no matter where you find yourself in today's passage, we all need to be there to help one another, not judge one another. We all need to be there to love one another and let the Holy Spirit continue to grow in each one of us. I understand that marriage, love, sexuality, and sex, it can all be messy and confusing. Uh, but there are some of the most, these are some of the most important elements of our lives because they're rather defining characteristics in our lives. So we need to take these subjects seriously and look to God for guidance. We need to look to Jesus. He's God in flesh. He shows us what to do. I understand, again, uh, you know, we can't always undo the things we've already done or uh, necessarily change where things may be now. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. Um, but we can start to at least be obedient now and pay attention to what Jesus is saying. So uh, I've given you today Jamin's take on this topic, and uh, <laughs> I, I hope that is helpful. I at least sincerely hope that it doesn't come across condemning because I have done I've, I've worked so hard that it wouldn't sound like that. All right, so we're going to wrap up. I do want to just give you a few books to take you deeper into this subject. So if you're looking for books to read on this, here we go. Here's a quick moment. Well, actually, maybe I should say resources. Because first off, the single best resource I think I've seen is Preston Sprinkle. He runs a uh, place called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And though he would fall in a similar theological conviction that I do, um, he he uh, he has just spent so much of his life trying to do this subject lovingly to the point that, like, I went to a six-hour seminar with him. He brought LGBT people on, up on the stage who were his friends to talk about what they had been through. He uh, told people these horror stories that his LGBT friends had gone through so that no matter what he said, he started there. Like, here's the horror stories. You need to hear these because despite where we might land on this subject, you need to always remember these people and what they're going through as we converse about it. So he is just, he's just done such great work on this. I would always suggest that people check it out. So the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender he has a new thing called the Digital Leaders Forum, which uh, is actually like that six-hour session that I went to. But in this case, it's done online with high-quality videos, interviews with uh, him as well as those of his friends who are LGBT, giving their perspectives, what they've been through, all of that. It is just a, a beautiful thing. So the Digital Leaders Forum does cost money, but it is well worth it. If you really want to jump into the topic, I really think that you need to uh, 
uh, check out that forum. If you don't want to do that, then you can check out uh, his books that are on similar topics. Um, People to be Loved is one of his books. Uh, Cheris is another book. That's C-H-A-R-I-S and Living in a Gray World. So this guy has done such a miraculous job. Check that out. It is a resource I think every pastor at least has to has to go through. Uh, it's just, it's so good. Okay, so that's one. The other one I've already mentioned, but Deborah Hirsch's book, Redeeming Sexuality. Again, she's writing uh, because she's been there. And she uh, her book is just a, a really good book that is going to um, sometimes make you uncomfortable. It's going to get into all kinds of details and uh, break down a lot of walls that that uh, people have, have put up, but it's it's well worth uh, listening to. I also mentioned um, I also mentioned Gregory Cole's book, Single Gay Christian, another great book uh, to listen to. If you're more of a like research theological type, uh, I did mention this story about ambiguity in Acts. That's by Sean D. Burke, but it's called Queering the Ethiopian Eunuch. Uh, and then the subtitle, Strategies of Ambiguity in Acts. That is well worth a read. I would suggest uh, checking it out. I, I don't know where he would land on the whole thing, but if you enjoy like just getting into rich research, uh, that's a good book to, to read. Though it does get into um, some things that are, are hard to, to read through um, because of how culture was back then. So just a warning on that. And then uh, one last one for you. Uh, there's a book called Messy Grace. And that book's by Caleb, Caleb Kaltenbach. That's K-A-L-T-E-N-B-A-C-H. Um, and though Caleb is uh, uh, straight, part of the reason that um, I think he is okay to speak in the situation is because his parents um, were both gay. Uh, they ended up getting divorced and because, you know, one was gay, one was a lesbian. So they, they broke off their marriage. Uh, and then Caleb got saved, became a pastor, and had to figure out um, how to kind of bridge this gap between his parents based on what he uh, now believed and, uh, you know, what his parents were going through. And it seems like it worked out pretty well for him. So that one's just kind of a, a good story about entering into being graceful with everyone regardless of where we might find differences or convictions. So uh, that is our long podcast episode today. Um, Hope this is helpful. If you have questions, feel free to reach out to me. If you have my email, if not, just go to 12weightgreenwood.com, leave uh, uh, some Q&A stuff on our contact form or on the Q&A box. And yeah, and we'll uh, talk to you from there. Okay. With that, that's another episode of the Midweek Podcast. We will catch you next time.